Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I went through a a process of realizing that this world as it exists now it's it's done it it does not have a future or the the future it has is uh unthinkably awful hi i'm sarah wilson and this is wild a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired up life Here we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. In this episode of Wild, I speak with Margaret Klein-Salomon. I'm Margaret Klein-Salomon. I'm a clinical psychologist and climate activist. In 2014, aged just 29, Margaret co-created the Climate Mobilisation, an organisation based out of New York, which has pushed more than 1,000 cities around the world to declare a climate emergency. She's written two books about the climate emergency. She has a PhD in clinical psychology. She's a member of the Climate Emergency Fund's advisory board, and she's become the voice in showing how facing our fear and grief around the climate mess will best mobilise us into action. Now, I have interviewed scores of scientists, IPCC advisors and experts about the climate crisis in the past three years. But Margaret delivers the stark reality like no one I've met. It's definitely wild, and I should warn you, though, it will also hurt like hell. When she first told me this truth, which we're about to deep dive into, I felt, like, physically sick. This world as it exists now, it's it's done. I invited Margaret to discuss this whole thing again here from her home office in New York where she's currently juggling a COVID puppy. And he's adorable and I love him so much, but he's, like, obsessed with me. And so he keeps coming in here. So I'm telling my husband, like, no, he really, I can't. You have to keep him away. Yes, this is important. It is is important. As I say, her wild truth is not easily digested. But also, paradoxically, It's brought me a very odd flavour of comfort and sense of arrival in my life. I think you'll see what I mean. So, Margaret, it is, I think this is our third time chatting and welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, It's an interesting one because um, in this podcast I explore wild ideas that get us activated and get us connected back into what really matters. And as you know, one of my big frames of reference is the climate crisis. And I really wanted to bring you in because we chatted some time back and we happened to meet a second time in Bondi shortly after the 2020 bushfires here in Australia. And it was a very pivotal moment. And we went and had a coffee in this chaotic sort of space. There was chaos everywhere. And you planted this idea with me, this thought, this quote, which has haunted me ever since. And I'll just warn everybody here listening, it's heavy. It's super, super heavy. Um, What you said to me was that you know that you are going to die of climate change. And I want to explore this with you because it's heavy. And at first, 
I think the blood drained from my face because I hadn't heard anyone say it as upfront as that. But then afterwards, I felt this incredible sort of elevation of freedom, which is a really odd thing to say, but I think that's what we're going to explore. It's a wild idea. Um, So, Margaret, can we kick off with you perhaps explaining um, why you know this to be true? Because you only work in hard facts. Yeah, so I don't know it to be true. In fact, I spend every day trying to do everything I can to make it untrue. But with short of a totally transformational global mobilization that for zero emissions and to reverse the sixth mass extinction of species as quickly as humanly possible, short, short of that, yeah, this is a this is a sinking ship. I, I mean, we're facing the collapse of civilization. Uh, Lester Brown, the former undersecretary of agriculture in the U.S., uh, makes it very clear is that while there's so many things happening with the climate emergency, um, you know, epidemics and uh, hurricanes and fires, all, all of these horrible things, the the most devastating thing to watch is the food supply. Yes. And drought and uh, invasive species and soil degradation, but causing food shortages, which cause collapse. They cause destabilization and, and collapse. I mean, hungry people don't just sit quietly. They uh, overthrow their governments. They emigrate to other countries. And it's so so what we're what we're facing, it's it, it's not a, quote, environmental Yes. Problem. Yes. We we are we are looking at the collapse of of everything, of our civilization, all of our systems. And so that I, I mean, that is the threat. That is the immediate threat. That's right. I, I remember you clarified it when we spoke and you said, Well, it's not that I'm gonna die of inundation. It's not that I'm going to necessarily die of pollution. It's going to be mass civil unrest. And, um, and I loved that, that quote, I loved hate, hated it, um, that, you know, hungry people don't just lie down and die, they fight. And I think you're right. It's, it's the first time I'd actually realised that, that that is the most terrifying, alarming aspect of this. I want to sort of come back to some of those facts in a moment, but there's also a freeing aspect to it, isn't there? And I know that there was a little bit of a, a sort of a awakening for you. And I've certainly gone through that. I feel an incredible amount of freedom and also that comes from meaning in my life now as a result of facing the climate truth. Tell me about that for you, especially from a clinical psychologist's point of view. Why does that happen to those of us who do face the truth front on? It is a psychological truism that the truth feels good yeah. in, inherently and that and that distorting the truth and using psychological defenses to protect ourselves is inherently depleting. Yeah. And so so that's that's one thing is just I mean it's always better to look at a situation in yourself, in your family, in politics, in the world system, it's always better to, to look at it for what it is rather than to try and shield yourself in, in different ways. Because it's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting to deny the truth. It Psychologically, it takes everything out of us to do that, to live in denial, and it causes sickness, for instance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing is really about grief, and I think kind of the the freeing or I don't know the transformative power of grief because I went I went through a, a process of realizing that um, this world as it exists now it's it's done it it does not have a future or the the future it has is uh, unthinkably awful. 
And looking at my future as <laughs> not the, you know, when, when I was a, when I was a kid, uh, my mom and my teachers, they told me that I could uh, I could be whoever I wanted to be, anything I wanted to be. And the future was bright and technological progress and social progress, you know, and just realizing that that is not true, that that we are living in a in a period of, uh, you know, collab- accelerating collapse. And yeah, the, the, fu- the, the life I thought I had, which was going to be a clinical psychologist and have a family and you know, just have a nice, uh, a nice career, a nice life. It, it wasn't going to happen. It couldn't, it, it, it's not possible to have a nice life like that in a collapsing world. And so realizing that grieving the future that I thought I had, realizing that my, all my beautiful plans and aspirations were not going to happen was actually tremendously freeing because it it means <laughs> I have this moment. I have this opportunity to fight for humanity in the living world, to try to cancel the apocalypse, right? That is what I have. I don't have the future. I don't, I don't have a bright future or a, you know, that, and, um, and so it, it, yeah, it certainly has allowed me to, let's say, not hold back. And just so everybody here knows, I mean, you're in your early thirties, is that right? Mid thirties give or take. Um, but, you know, these are all very real goals and aspirations. And it, I remember I remember when I was in my early to mid 30s, you know, it was a lot about run up. So a lot of my energy went into planning what was going to come next, Prepa- preparing my career, preparing my psychology for a love life that I was going to have. And I know that that would be the space you and many people listening are in, even regardless of the age, we all have plans. That energy you transformed into energy that you could put into doing something right now, like in an immediate framework. Maybe talk us through the process of grief and what happens if you don't process it, because we are a culture mm. that run away, runs away from any discomfort. And grief is deeply uncomfortable and we don't know how to talk about it, live through it, pass through it, and then come out into the present and have an awesome life. Grief is an amazing psychological process that's universal among humans and 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 it is the process through which we adapt to new and unwelcome realities so if someone dies it grief is the process of reckoning with that of feeling that of of having that become real to us in uh, in an emotional and spiritual way, and if you don't grieve, then you don't adapt to your new reality. You stay stuck between the past and the present. It in a way, I mean, I I think a lot of people know someone or have heard of someone who couldn't get over a loss, and. And, uh, you know, a lot of couples, uh, older couples die very soon after each other. It's just too devastating or, um, yeah, or just, just became, became stuck, uh, for years or, or for the rest of their life in, in a, a death of a, of a partner or child or, you know, these, these devastating losses, um, can, take people down um, in a way that they don't, they can't get out from. But grief is, I, I mean, it feels a little bit strange to say because everyone knows grief is painful, but grief is actually the answer to these overwhelming losses. It, it is the the mechanism through which we come to accept these horrible things um, and, and adapt to them and find a new find a new life given this reality. So what about for you? Let's maybe talk about the things that you have grieved over the last couple of years as this realization's come about. I mean, 
children um, becoming a mother, where are you at with that? Because the t- statistics in America and Australia are similar. Between a third to I think about 50% of millennials are saying they don't want to have children because of the climate crisis. Yeah, it's a truly shocking thing, the amount of kind of dissonance, cognitive dissonance. We we know that this is true in some areas, but then we forget it or, you know, deny it in others. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm not planning on having children because I would want to protect them and make sure that they could have a halfway decent life and chance. And it would just be, for me, a <laughs> just torture mm. to uh, to know that I that they were in so much danger. And, you know, even with all of my efforts, I, I couldn't ensure them what they deserve. So. So, yeah, for for me, that that's a no. I did. I absolutely, absolutely had to grieve that. How did you do the grief around that? Like, I'd love to know. Um, just it's a good example to work from to see the process, the psychological process. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's uh, accepting your feelings, letting letting them be, crying, talking about the feelings with with trusted people, you know, a therapist or a support group, but also just friends and family who are, who are good listeners. And yeah, just, just giving it, giving it time, not, not fighting it. I I mean, a, a lot of people have ideas about grief such as, you know, it shouldn't go on for very long or, you know, you should, you, you should have it about this, but not this, you know, it was just my dog. I shouldn't feel grief. Right. Like some, um, and so to to not uh, engage in that kind of judgment, but to to accept that your grief is real and it it matters, and that it that it reflects your love and connection. Margaret, I'm wondering if you would find this interesting. There's a wonderful poet who I have done some work with, David White. He's written a lot about grief, and he describes grief as this falling through the floor. And you think you've fallen through a number of layers and surely that's enough. And then the bottom falls out again and then, and then it falls out again and again and you keep falling through these floors eventually. And you don't know when, but you arrive at the landing spot. And what you realise is that landing spot is the space, the emotional, psychological space that that thing you used to grieve would hold for you. And now you realise it's you that's there. It's you holding that space. So he saw grief as something that you have to fall through, like you fall into love. You fall in love, you fall in grief until you land at the spot that the thing you grieved used to hold or take up. What do you reckon of that psychologically? That Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's very interesting. One, one part of that that I, I think is super important is is the understanding that grief is a process and it does end. I I, I mean, in it, yeah, it, it it ends and then it you still remember and honor what was what you lost or who you lost, but it it takes on a different emotional quality. And so I, I think it's it's really important to realize that if you allow yourself to grieve, to, to fall through that floor, you, you don't, it doesn't go on forever. You don't just keep falling, um, for the rest of your life, though it, though it can feel that way. Cause you don't, you don't necessarily know when you're grieving that, yeah, that there, that there is any end. Um, you have, but you have to go through it. You have to allow yourself mm-hmm. to fall into it. If you try to avoid grief to get over it, uh, then then there you actually don't get to that floor. You don't find an end place to it. So, Margaret, how have you used your grief and the facing of it 
and the landing there to activate yourself in such a way that your life has become meaningful in the climate movement. Because I think that's a really interesting process for people to understand because that's your real pivotal thesis that we can turn our pain into action. And in fact, the pain is sometimes the best precursor to getting us mobilised in that radical way. Absolutely. I, it took me several years to move from a vague awareness and alarm about the climate emergency into action. And during that, during those years, I, I learned more about the climate emergency. I grieved more. I, I felt tremendous, um, anxiety and, uh, really terror. I mean, it felt like there was like a red light, um, blasting in my face and what changed everything for me was when my good friend said to me, don't start a blog, which is what I was planning, some kind of climate blog. I, you know, I was a, I was a clinical psychologist. I would offer commentary, you know, like an academic kind of, uh, that's, that's just how the, framework I was in. But my friend said, don't start a blog. Discourse isn't enough. Think, what could you do to actually solve this crisis? And, and I, I never, it, that, 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 that idea just blew my mind, that, that challenge. And I realized that I had, I had never wanted anything more. Um, and I had just, but I had never let myself see it. I had never, imagined myself as some, someone who could possibly change the world. It's just, uh, yeah, I was outside of my self-concept. So, but what grief did and my, and my terror did is it brought me, it, it, it created a huge well of motivation that when my friend said, well, try to stop it right? Try to not let the world collapse. It was like bursting through. So that, that happened in 20, 2013. And for, for since, since then, I've seriously been like a, like a wild woman, just, <laughs> uh, just on this mission and doing things that I never thought I would do like fundraise and, I mean, build websites, whatever, whatever it takes. It doesn't matter. I'll do anything. Yeah. So, so pain and fear are tremendous motivators. They, they're really the the greatest motivators, right? I mean, we, yeah, we act in ways that make us feel good and, and not, not just, you know, happy on the surface, but, but feel whole and like we have meaning and yeah so if we if we feel all of that pain it can yeah it it can absolutely motivate us to to change our lives and and if we realize that the future we thought we had the plans we thought we had not gonna happen there's two schools of thought though isn't there margaret and it's been um this first school of thought has dominated the environmental movement um, as it was called. And that's this idea of, oh, let's go softly, softly. Let's talk about saving the koalas. Let's talk about um, preserving the planet. And it's been a lot of uh, sugarcoating and avoidance, really. The language has been very avoidant. Um, so I think there's been a shift now into this more emergency mode um, of thinking and discourse. Um and I think that's a really important one, the, the, the idea that fear activates. But I, I get the impression, and this has been my experience, that if we talk just everyday fear, sort of CO2 tonnages and sea level rising and so on, it doesn't quite get people there. But when we go hardcore sort of reality checks and we get people facing those, whether it's at a barbecue and they have to put their sausages down or whatever it is, it can actually trigger what you went through, that sort of awakening. Can you talk me through in your experience working with lots and lots of clients um, in this space, what are some real clangers, some real barbecue stoppers, some real fat, hard facts about the climate that do tend to see a penny drop? 
there's definitely statistics like 1.5 billion people are already water insecure and that we could have a billion climate refugees by 2050. But but honestly, I think that the the climate has discussion has been so intellectual, um, scientific, that I would I think speaking from the heart is is the thing to do at a barbecue and and almost all settings. So I to say like I said to you and I I was interested to read in your book that a lot of scientists confirm that they felt this way, that they thought that their cause of death would be the climate emergency, right? So say that, say, yeah, I don't, Mm. I I mean, or, or, and, and you can ask too, say, you know, what do you, what do you think the future holds? What do you, what do you see happening over the next 50 years? Cause I can tell you what I see and it ends in, you know, everybody here meeting a, a horrible fate. What do you tell people when they say, okay, all right, well, what do you, Margaret, see? What, you know, tell me some of those those realities that you, you, you have in your psyche at the moment. I see the collapse of civilization driven by resource scarcity, water scarcity, food scarcity, um, as well as all of the other impacts of climate and and all the other problems we're facing wildfires hurricanes devastate uh, yeah devastating whole whole regions that were these these disasters are getting so huge like the bushfires in australia uh that i mean they're just on a on a different on a different scale so all of those things coming together I don't think I don't think necessarily people know how fragile our systems are and that, you know, food doesn't come from the grocery store. It comes through through a complex chain of growing, distributing. Uh, And when that goes down, I mean, the U.N. talks about 12 meals that that uh, people or a region missing twelve meals, um, so four four days without food is enough is enough to to cause a tremendous social chaos, right? Because again, what do what do hungry people do? What what would you what would you do if there was if there was no food and you didn't know how to get mm, food? That's right, right? I mean, and you didn't and you were hungry and your family was hungry. I, I mean, people take drastic action. I would too. I don't know. I, I, so uh, the other thing that's really frightening for people is when they start to realise, where people start to know now that the 1.5 degree increase above pre-industrialised levels is the, the point, the threshold. Everybody sort of knows that now. When I point out to people, we are cruising for that way earlier than 2050. We're looking at it in the next five years after that, life becomes uninhabitable. It, it it becomes a different kind of life. It's not the life of being able to have summers at the beach and ski in the winter. All those things that we define as sort of wonderful aspects of our human existence, you know. Um, when I point that out, it makes people go, "Oh, yeah." I think I think that's I think that's right. I think talking about the the staggering rate of loss of animals, of insects. Um, I, I think those are, I mean, it's horrifying. Over over a billion, and I've seen estimates as high as two billion, animals died in the Australian bushfires. Yep, I've heard the same figures. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. 
Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm on board with you. I think, I think putting the facts out there and getting people into a space of emergency mode is, is freeing. It's activating and ultimately it's going to bring us um, meaning and engagement in, in in a life that I think can be absolutely hopeful and wonderful. And I know that in your work um, with climate mobilisation, one thing that you've really worked alongside is this idea that World War II, you compare what happened in World War II and America was incredible. Talk us through how that, that sort of metaphor of World War II can actually bring us a great deal of hope. Yeah. The most hopeful I've ever felt about the climate emergency was from reading about World War II and, and what uh, the United States and the Allies accomplished during that time. Because after years of denial, right, uh, it's not our war, you know, let it stay in Europe, uh, America first. After years of that being the prevailing sentiment in the country and in Congress, uh, after the surprise attacks on Pearl Harbor, uh, isolationism evaporated overnight. Congress unanimously minus one voted to go to war. And I, I, I mean, we entered a different mode of functioning that I call emergency mode in which the, I, I, it's I, it's an evolved uh, way of being in which when, when there is an understanding that we are threatened, we are existentially threatened, we will die, it, it kicks us into high gear, right? And we are able to cooperate and to sacrifice and to work towards the common good in just a totally different way. So for example, during World War II, 40% of American vegetables were grown at home in victory gardens. And every, I mean, of, like, of course you would grow a victory garden like to support the war effort. That was, that was totally normalized. 10% uh, of Americans moved to a different state to work in a war job. Women started working in uh, industrial occupations for the first time. And we, we converted our economy from a war economy, or excuse me, from a consumer economy to a war economy in just a few years. And that, that happened through a combination of spending, the, the government saying, of, of course we're gonna spend everything we have on this because otherwise, because the alternative losing is, you know, the same as death. It, it can, and also strong interventionist policy. None of this uh, neoliberal hands off the market kind of thing. For example, we, uh, we needed all of our car manufacturing capacity to make tanks and planes. So the government banned the sale of new automobiles, right? Like, sorry, can't do that. Got to do this other thing. And uh, yeah, and on the individual level, a family level, uh, meat, gasoline, tires, sugar, and other commodities were rationed and every American got a fair share. The top tax rate on the highest earners was 94%. That is mind-blowing. I mean, try to imagine that in today's culture. But look, Margaret, what was the thing that switched people's psychology? What was the 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 clangor, the barbecue stopper thing that made people go, right, yeah, emergency all the rules that we were living by before are redundant. We're going to have to adjust to the fact that life is vastly different now. What was the thing during World War II? It was it was the attack on Pearl Harbor. And 
if if you look at human evolution, human psychology, individual and group psychology as a as a product of evolution, it was it was perfect for, to to achieve that trigger. We we are evolved to have this uh, us versus them mentality, and they uh, attacked us and they surprised us, and so it's it's going to be harder this time. Is 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 the truth? Okay, so yes, exactly. There's the element of immediacy, and there's the element of an an enemy out there, and. As humans, we can rail against that and that brings us into a collective framework that tribalism kicks in and we rally together and we unify. And as you say, the climate crisis is absent of those two factors. We we don't see the immediacy. And then um, the enemy is us, which is so psychologically unfathomable. What do you feel is going to ricochet us into action? What's going to fill that void? I think it needs to be, this is, if we succeed in entering emergency mode and mobilizing to protect humanity in the living world, it will be, to my knowledge, the first time that humanity has been able to rally that kind of spirit outside of a violent war, right? Wow. We don't, (laughs) there's... We're, we're figuring it out as we go along, let's say. But I think what it's going to take is a consensus, a national and global consensus that our lives are in danger because of the climate emergency. And in some ways, it's like, holy shit, that's, ne- you know, that's too much. That's never going to happen. And maybe, maybe so. Um, but on the other hand, it's the truth it's making itself more and more unavoidably obvious every day. Um, and more and more people are waking up and doing things like changing their lives and devoting them to, to changing the system. So I, I think that, I think that, I think that that's also an important point. And I know you talk about this in your book, but I, I don't think the enemy is us. I think the enemy is the system. Yes. And, and, and it and it is true what what is the system well it's us and it's what we do right but but it's so much bigger than us and i so i think orienting at or, or orienting around that is is really important and understanding how the best way for you to try and protect yourself and your family and the whole human family is to try to change the system, is to do what you can to change the system, that that is going to have more impact, more um, power than changes you can make in your own life. And I, I think it's a more exciting way of just living and viewing yourself. You're not a consumer. You're a, you're a, you're a citizen. You're a change agent. One thing I wanted to pick up on is you do a bunch of activities and one-on-one, no doubt over the phone now in sort of groups, no doubt on Zoom, but you work with clients doing these uh, turning pain into action type psychological processes. Is it something that you can do with me now or, you know, like is it something that we can do together or do you want to just talk through it? Because I'd really love to leave people with a process that they can work with um, after they listen to this. Yeah. So it's really simple, actually. I mean, it's so it's, um, how, how do you feel about the climate emergency? Creating, creating space for people to talk about that. Yes. So, so tell me, tell me more, tell me more about how you feel. Yeah. Well, I, I feel really scared. I get overwhelmed with a, a really big expansive emotion, which I can't say I've experienced in any other format, mostly around my nieces and nephews the life that we've left them with. Um, I I find myself crying in this frustrated sense of how did we get to this? You know, I feel cringy that I am, you know, I, I benefited from the very things that have made the future for my nieces and nephews impossible. So, yeah, and, and I am scared. I'm scared about whether 
I'm scared when I think about when everybody realises what's going on, the incredible pain and sadness that humanity is going to feel. I can feel that already. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's actually terrific just because it's, it's always, it's always impactful to hear people's stories, right? I, I feel moved. I, I feel because we're all dealing with this horrible situation. And, and really, I, I mean, for, for, for people, emotions and our perceived realities, our lived realities, it's actually more real for people. It touches them more than science, statistics, intellect, right? So, so by asking people, by creating a space that asks people, how do you feel about the climate emergency and having them share those feelings like you just did with each other? It's so simple, but it freaking works. So what happens next? What do you say next? You know, when I sort of talk about that and I might rebut you and go, but, but why will my emotions change anything? Um, nobody seems to be doing anything and I don't know where to start. How do I make that transferal into activation, mobilization. After you have experienced the fear, grief, terror, rage, guilt, shame, after you, let's say, have allowed yourself to experience those feelings, which were there anyway, but after naming them and looking at them squarely and hearing other people share their feelings, Right. Then then is the time to ask, Okay, so, you know, so what? So what about it? What what am I going to do? What can I do? That is kind of the the question that anyone who talks about climate will get over and over and over again. But it's not there's it's not like, oh, boom, here's the answer. Right. Like, number one, talk about the climate emergency and do it emotionally. That's I, I that's the one thing that I tell everyone to do because it it makes it real. It breaks the silence. But that's just a starting place. And the next thing to find your unique place in the climate emergency movement, that is as complicated and personal as choosing a career right? Like how, what is the unique and important way that you can contribute to this transformation? And so in, in my book, uh, Facing the Climate Emergency, the final chapter try, tries to help people really think through this rigorously, like, how, you know, starting from how many hours can I commit to this a week? Yes. Uh, can I commit money to this and how much? Am I willing to get arrested? What's my risk tolerance? Am, do I have special skills like graphic design or bookkeeping that I that or, an organization can use? Like the, what, what you need to do is take all that motivation and try to find the most effective route to change the system that, that you can. And that's almost certainly going to be through joining or supporting an organization, other people, right? That's how we get stuff done is through coordinated efforts, not really like, you know, solo stuff on in the vast majority of cases. Yeah, yeah. And I think one thing I really think is really important, and you've, you've triggered this in me, is that I think the, the process of talking about it psychologically and acknowledging the shared pain and grief and fear and terror is that the answer as to what you do next comes through that. You've, you've got to be enrolled and you've got to actually put the work in, like you say, finding a career and, and going for it, not just thinking it's going to come magically. But I think that the process of uh, getting over that psychological blockage, this idea that um, I just want to curl up in a ball and pretend it's not happening is just so incredibly important. And like with World War II, we need to see everybody else doing it. And that is motivating, you know? It needs to become a kamikaze kind of fast-moving train and we all get on board and and it, it goes places. And 
I think I want to sort of finish off with the fact that I do find all of this really terrifying. Um, and especially going back to that idea of the civil, mass civil unrest, that probably stops people um, more than anything because it's an ugly aspect of humanity. I mean, if we're going to die, I don't want to see humans dying in such a low way, a low, unevolved way where we're fighting each other. So it is the scariest bit, but what I've found is that by activating, and I'd love to get your comment on this, by activating, doing everything I can, it it almost drowns out all of that paralyzing fear. I feel that space that used to be filled with fear, paralyzing fear. I feel it now with the very thing that I'm scared might be taken from us, and that is our humanity. Because while I'm activating, I'm engaged with the best of humanity. And I I wanted to see if that's what goes on for you, Margaret, with the work you're doing now, because you've been in this space now for almost 10 years. Is, is that how you feel? Does that resonate? I feel in a, in a very deep and integrated way, like nothing else matters. Um, and that has given me a, a clarity. I I mean, and it's, it's the grief too, that I, I went through a process of grief. I grieved the future that I thought I had. And now this is what I have. I have this fight. And is, is that what I would choose? No, but I'm, I'm honored to be in it. I'm, I'm, proud of what I've contributed. And I am more happy about who I am than I'd ever been before in, in my life. I, it's, it doesn't feel good to live in this, uh, whatever Western consumer capitalist notion of the self, right? Just like, you know, building my resume or, you know, building your brand or whatever. It's like I, I was I was super focused on that and kind of insecure. And like I, it, it feels it just it feels so much better to care about something more than you care about yourself and to 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 view yourself as as an instrument of, of change. So, I, I mean, yeah, I. I just have allowed myself to kind of merge with the mission um, in a way that I, I, I would I would never go back to to normal life. It's actually much more fulfilling to live in truth and to to have peace with yourself as as it sounds like you do that. Like, what is what is the answer to this horrible situation and all of this grief and pain? Well, it's to go all out to try and prevent it. Full stop. Amen. So Margaret and I covered a few gargantuan and, and gnarly truths here, and I, I hope you're all coping off the back of it. We will very likely die of the climate crisis and it will horribly likely be via the mass civil unrest that will arise out of food and water shortages, and it's not going to be from inundation or heat exhaustion. But also, denial is exhausting, and we are all damn exhausted. I am. I'm guessing that you are too. Plus, frankly, truth feels good. Like me, you might have been left after this conversation asking, Please, as substantially as possible, please tell me again, how can I turn this unfathomable pain I'm feeling into action and joy and and peace and a life of meaning? Margaret's action point, and it's a very sound one, is to do the grief and to do it together. So I guess the suggestion that we can all take away here is get together, form a Zoom group, Talk about what you're feeling. Name it. Name it as grief. And this simple process gets rid of the exhausting denial, and that's huge. It also then leaves you with the energy and the psychic space to start doing stuff that can shift the dial. 
I'll add to Margaret's thoughts, actually, that the prefrontal cortex shuts down, like you go numb when it's overwhelmed with fear or exhausting denial. It's a survival mechanism. So if you flesh out your grief, you keep things open and working and you can stay active. At the same time, the mere action of just forming a Zoom group and fleshing things out around grief a bit further with your friends drowns out the fear. If you think this sounds too simple, it's, it's actually totally what I've done and I have found that it works over the last couple of years. I started by voicing up and learning and facing my fear and I started to feel better. So I did more and more until I landed here with you chatting on this podcast. As James Baldwin wrote in the 1960s amid incredible racial upheaval, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. If you're after a starting point, I run regular Instagram lives to chat through these kinds of big emotions. I do it semi-regularly. I also have a book club guide you can work to for piecing through climate pain, which you can get off my website. And Margaret has a really good Let's Talk About the Climate Emergency project that she runs via www.climateawakening.org. And you can join a group of about two to five people and there are conversation prompts from Margaret. You might find that helpful. And there's also this, which gets me excited and also emotional and very activated. If we shift the world into this emergency mode and mobilise like these magical unicorn mofos, it will be the first time we've ever done it outside a war. I'm not sure about you, but this idea sings to me. Mobilising around that makes me feel that I will have at least done something truly special and meaningful with my one wild and precious life. So let's all go out, get kamikaze with it, merge with our mission and arrive at our meaning together. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.